Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Wherever you look, uh, overnight we had bond yields in New Zealand, Australia dropping to record lows. The universe of negative yielding assets now topping 10 trillion dollars. Here with us in New York to make sense of everything, Tony Crescenzi, PIMCO, market strategist and portfolio manager. Tony, how important is that number 10 trillion right now? Well, uh, on Jamaica, quick IMF study. <laughs> indebtedness, big drop in indebtedness the past yeah. year it talks about. Uh, and it's a lesson for other nations on how to get it done. Right. They had to get many different groups together. It's a big political game, um, it, it but was, they, it, they won. It was interesting as many of the Caribbean leaders went to Mar-a-Lago to meet with the president, where Venezuela, John, there's an immediacy to the Venezuela debate down there that you don't have up here. You know, last week the show was so focused. Really? So focused. <laughs> Can we get off Jamaica for a little bit? You know, I, the, I had a cricket lesson Wednesday with some guy that was just awesome. Did you have fun? Yeah, it's hard. You have can't, you fallen you... in love with the game? Oh, I'm just so cricket. <laughs> Do you want to try and bring Tony back Why don't in? we bring in one of the leading experts on short-term paper in the world? John, <laughs> I'll let I'm you trying try desperately to do it. I'm trying, Tony. What are, you, what are you telling clients at the moment? Well, uh, the um, so there as you mentioned, there are ten trillion dollars of bonds globally that are negative yielding. Uh, the conversion of the U.S. yield curve reflects some of the forces that have pushed yields into negative territory globally in Japan. And Germany, Germany and the rest of Europe specifically. Uh, these forces are going to be with us for a long time. Uh, it is not, um, uh, it's not improbable that interest rates will stay low until 2030 because the U.S. population is aging, for example. There are a lot of people born between 1946 and 64. As they age, they, they uh, have a big impact on growth. It means the, the workforce could be shrinking. In Japan, it's outright shrinkage. A million-person decline in the last five years. Two million-person decline from 2017 to 2022. 22 to 27, they'll have a near three million-person decline in the population, down from 125 million. This makes it more difficult to have high levels of uh, spending and high levels of output. In other words, faster growth. In other words, high interest rates. It's very difficult to have those conditions. And so uh, what we would say about Friday and conditions more generally, it reflects a very big secular or super secular force, yeah. demographics and other factors, productivity, uh, that will be with us for a long time. So you've got this massive weight on the long end of the yield curve. Raises the question what kind of signal you can take when short dated yields surpass the longer dated yields. What kind of signal can you take from curve inversion? I had to pull out my uh, a large book from a fellow Italian, Frank Fabosi. It's 1,300 pages, and I was reading through um, areas on the yield curve. There's two theories you could say. There's the so-called pure expectation theory where the yield could reflect what investors think the Fed will do next. So yields, longer-term yields falling below shorter-term yields can only mean that the market thinks uh, the Fed will lower its policy rate. But there are other ideas. There's something called the, the uh, preferred habitat theory. I, in other words, I would rather own a 10-year security than a three-month security. Typically, one would ask for a higher 
amount of yield as compensation against various risks. But today, the investor says, yeah. "I want the sh- I want more compensation in the short maturity because I think the T bills at two forty are not a good buy because okay. they'll eventually be zero. Let's go back to first principles and let's forget about Frank Fabosi and his wonderful eight hundred page books. You and I have skimmed through them. I, excuse me, Crescenzi read them. I skimmed them. <laughs> uh, but but within this is the theory of gross, and that's Bill Gross, which is financial repression. Yes, there's no absolutely. end in sight, is no. there? There's we the highest level we expect the European Central Bank to put its policy rate at any time in the next five years is zero. Its current okay. level is minus point four. Within this insanity, and this is serious so words, stuff for retirees. Trillions of dollars of money looking to escape financial repression, low interest rates, negative interest rates. Where do they go? Dividend they, growth. They tend to go these days into credit instruments. Why are they not going to U.S. Treasuries? They are, but less so. Because when they hedge out the currency risks in Germany and in Japan, right. the yield is actually negative. There's a loss. They, it's better for them to stay in their, their own government bonds than to purchase treasuries. Okay. So they look to credit. And this includes the emerging markets. And that's why after December's drubbing, big decline in the stock market, big decline in corporate bonds, etc., they rally back because there's so much money locked up in this financial repression okay, looking to escape. Tony, a lot of people listening to this right now don't have the luxury of buying institutional exposure to emerging market fixed income right. debt. They just want to know where to get a yield, nominal or an inflation-adjusted real yield. John, I don't know if you're familiar with the phrase real yield. No, please, okay, thank you. walk me through it. But, but within this is the financial <laughs> repression Bill was talking about for decades. I see... Come on, new negative rates, new financial repression. Are you going to tell me we're going to go out another decade with this? It's highly probable. I mean, I, I'm going to send you a pyramid of on the population changes in Japan that, that I just mentioned earlier. Uh, these are substantial forces. Now, there is something that can work against it, and Japan worked at it, and we saw that Prime Minister Abe say this in Davos. Um, it's called womenomics. Why not bring more women, more senior citizens into the workforce to offset that? And he said since December 2012 when he took office, no. uh, there've been there's a 2 million person increase in the number of women working, but it's not enough to offset this large Womenomics? Kathy Matsui Goldman did bringing some great women work on this. into the workforce. Okay. And they have, no, in fact, no. been successful. 67.7% level of... Um, Tom's got a very different no. version of women. John, tuitionomics. That's that what it's called. That's that it's, it's called tuitionomics. Many, 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 many ideas. I think Think, uh, ideas that the, the governments have to start thinking about and has nothing to do with central, central <laughs> banks and they have no power on this. So, Tony, with all of this in mind, the conversation in the last seven minutes or so, a lot of our listeners want to understand whether risk assets can perform in this environment. What was interesting at the price section of last week is that we still had inflows into US investment grade and high yield funds and investment grade European credit now yields below 0.9%. Seems like the credit market can still perform well whether we have an inversion in the treasury market or not. It's not the, the, the key thing that's needed though, the key ingredient is ongoing economic expansion. If investors start to think the story will change, then they start to change their view about the the cash flows and the ability to get money back to be repaid and so in the context of ongoing economic expansion investors will keep reaching outward along the risk spectrum into credit related assets which include the emerging markets too Tony, thank you. Tony Casazzi was a John, cool way so too much. short. We could go, all of our guests this morning, we could go for Great like time. three thank hours. You. There's so much going on as well.
With us is Robert Hormatz, Ambassador Hormatz, uh, with Kissinger Associates and, of course, his work with not only Republican and Democrat administrations, last with uh, Secretary Clinton at Obama uh, State Department. Ambassador, thrilled to have you here. Just a general comment on Mr. Mueller and what that means for getting things done in Washington in the coming months. Well, I suspect there'll continue to be activities on the part of the various investigatory committees on the Hill and probably in the Southern District of New York and Eastern Virginia. But I think the American political focus will now look to something different. Um, And what's going to have to happen is if we're going to move ahead, there's going to have to be some progress on areas like the economy. If the economy is weakening, there'll be more attention to that. Health care is going to be an important issue. And perhaps if there's one other element of this uh, Mueller report that can be focused on, it is the notion of both sides pulling together to deal with whatever he comes up with with respect to Russian involvement in American elections. Because the argument by most people is this happened, there's a lot of evidence that it happened, and it's continuing. So maybe they can use it as a rallying point to move ahead on that issue, but at least move ahead into some other types of issues that the American public is going to be focusing on more than Mueller, which is going to be in the rearview mirror of most people. And and folks, we had a terrific uh, conversation with the prosecutor this morning. We'll try to get on our podcast as well. Ambassador, President Xi has just landed in Paris. Our Maria today are translating for me. Thank you, Maria. And Le Figaro, uh, looking for a relationship that can be mutually beneficial and maybe Mr. Macron pushing back a little bit against the mutual beneficiality. How should Americans perceive President Xi of China greeting Mr. Macron? Well, it's very interesting. You see what's going on in Europe just this week. You have this visit by President Xi Jinping in Italy and in France, trying to strengthen uh, ties between Europe and China. And we shouldn't forget that the original Silk Road, which is now the Belt and Road Initiative, really was between China and Europe, particularly Italy at the time. So he's attempting to strengthen ties, which will strengthen markets for Chinese goods and strengthen political relations. But the Europeans now are making, particularly the French and the Germans, the argument that they want reciprocity, particularly with respect to investment. The Chinese bought this big German robotics company, KUKA. There was a very large reaction in Germany. So they're going to be pushing for a greater degree of reciprocity on trade, but particularly on investment. So I think the Chinese will have more influence in Europe, but it won't be uh, all one way. The Europeans are going to push back, at least in some areas. The other point I think ought to be made, this is the 70th anniversary of NATO. Uh, The head of NATO is coming to the U.S. in early April. We ought to really realize that Europe, with all the internal difficulties it's having and with the fact that the Chinese are trying to strengthen their ties and the Russians are trying to undermine unity in Europe and transatlantic unity, this may be the celebration of the 70th anniversary of NATO, may be an opportunity for the U.S. once again to reassert the value and the importance of our relationship with Europe, both politically and from a security point of view and economically. So we shouldn't let all these things just drift by us. This ought to be a priority for us if we want to play a major role as a great power in the future. Europe is our major ally, both Britain and the continent. We have to figure out, particularly through NATO, but elsewhere, how to how to strengthen these ties. So, Bob, the, the president of the United States just got a, a victory lap at home. Does that shape his approach abroad in any way, shape or form? I think it probably will convince some uh, people abroad who may, maybe were wondering 
what the outcome was going to be, that he's going to be around for uh, for at least two years and maybe more. Um, and I think they're going to have to take him um, more seriously in some areas, at least it, it, his endurance yeah. will be something they're going to really focus on to a greater degree. And it probably strengthens his hand um, in, in some respects. On the other hand, at the very same time, the weakening of the American economy, um, the Chinese are looking at that and saying, well, perhaps the Americans now need to deal with us to a greater degree than they did a few weeks ago, so that while the Chinese economy seems to be strengthening, the American economy seems to be weakening. And that, despite the positive benefit for the president of what yeah. was announced by uh, the, the by at least Secretary Barr, Attorney General Barr, um, the, the economics may be convincing other countries that, gee, the Americans don't yeah. necessarily have the future to prosperity for the indefinite uh, period of years. Never enough time. Please come back for a three-hour interview. Jen and I would like to go on this. We could go for. Do you, do you ever talk about inflation-adjusted yields? I do. I'm paying a lot of attention to them because I think that the conversation you had with Tony a little while ago was yeah. a, a very interesting thing. The I, yield curve always gives certain signals. The question of how you read them and. Okay, and, I recommend that you attend the Real Yield. It's a television program on Bloomberg Television. John Farrow doing the we're, real We're plugging yield. my show very early in the week. Horvats would be great on your show. I think I'd, Bob would be great I'd on love any show. I'd love to do that. I'd love to do It'd this. It'd be original. I, I think, I also think that we're probably not able to measure uh, inflation very no, well. No, I thought you were going to mention and, Farrow's ratings. No, we were going to go Ambassador, thank what? you so much. This is Bloomberg. <laughs> It is always good to speak to Mary Lovely of Syracuse University and the Peterson Institute. She joins us always on China and can address Air China and the President of China greeting Mr. Macron today. It was really something, Mary, to see the image of Air China. I guess they're Air Force One, if you will, uh, dropping down onto Paris. What does the leadership of China want out of France and what do they want out of Europe? Well, they're looking for uh, friends everywhere, and they're also looking to continue to diversify uh, their portfolio in terms of where they do business, how they do business. Uh, France, of course, is an important player in Europe, and Europe and Japan have both joined with the EU in terms of opposing some of uh, China's business practices. So I think a big part of his visit will be to continue to establish relationships. Uh, France also is a uh, player in terms of how the world views the extension of the Belt and Road Initiative into Europe. As you know, uh, China has reached out to Italy, and Italy would become part of the Belt and Road Initiative. That's a very vague uh, notion. Nevertheless, it shows the expanding uh, geopolitical reach of China into Europe, and uh, China's going to need friends in France and, and in Germany. Is China taking advantage of a fragmented Europe, Mary? What's your read on that? Uh, I think that China, sent, when it senses weaknesses, it, it can use that. But I think there's a longer-term uh, you know, overall arching game here that China is playing. And I don't use the, the word game pejoratively here. It is reaching out to establish new relationships, new markets, 
those two things for China are, are, are joined. And uh, this may be a good time, given that there is um, a bit of chaos with the uh, Brexit situation and also uh, among the members themselves. Yeah, but the point, Mary, and you just nailed it, is the timeline. President Xi is landing in Paris or landing here or there with a timeline, not only to be fair to the president, completely different than the president, but completely different than any American president could be. How far divided are the timelines of China and Asia from the timelines of an American leader? Well, we know an American leader's timeline uh, can't really extend past four years because they have the elections coming out. China, of course, the president of China, Xi Jinping, has been already been uh, appointed president for life. So his his timeline certainly does not is not uh, limited by the next election. Uh, China has some very definite um, time constraints. Uh, one is, of course, the fact that while its population is young right now, it 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 will it has already. Um, the labor force has already ceased growing. The population will cease growing and, in fact, begin to decline and will age rather rapidly. And so, you know, she's uh, basic impacts, which is to upgrade Chinese uh, industry and services, uh, does have, in some sense, a ticking clock behind it, which is the need to perform. The, the, the Chinese Communist Party is based on performance legitimacy. That is, it, it needs to show that it can manage the economy well be viewed as legitimate. So he has to continue to deliver wage increases, uh, particularly to those who have been left out in, uh, of the, the uh, reform and opening growth of the last, particularly over the last 10 years. And he has to uh, provide the upgrades that will allow workers to be even more productive in the future. Mary, Tom and I have had a few people come on this program over the last couple of weeks talking about the pressure, the immense pressure that the Chinese leader is coming under domestically. Can you talk to that a little bit, Mary? Well, there is pressure for him domestically. Uh, it's not only the, the trade war, although that certainly uh, adds to it. Um, he's also engaged in several very vigorous campaigns, including that of reducing debt levels, and, of course, the ongoing anti-corruption campaign, which has had quite a chilling impact on uh, the bureaucracy uh, and among private sector firms. So I think that uh, he does have pressure. People are worried. Has he, has he taking the right approach? Uh, he has been yeah. criticized, at least, about the uh, upfrontness of them trying to dominate in certain industries. But he has a tremendous right. amount of leverage and a tremendous amount of power. So I think we'll see over the next few years, right. if he can deliver, if he can turn this around, those, those qualms will, be, will right. go away. Mary, thank you so much. Mary Lovely with the Peterson Institute, an update on uh, China as we see President Xi visit Paris. Right now, a gentleman who was high above Cayuga's waters playing football years ago, we will not speak, Paul, on Cornell basketball. It was an off year. But an off can, year. An off year. But we can speak with Douglas, can speak rather with uh, Doug Thornell this morning about uh, Washington uh, and all. Doug, you were a communications director, a gentleman of message for many affiliated Democratic institutions. 
What are the Democrats getting wrong this morning? Obviously, it's a polarized Washington. We know the Democrat message. We know the Trumpian message. What are the Democrats getting wrong right now? Well, Tom and Paul, it's great to be with you. Um, I, I, would, I wouldn't jump to any uh, conclusion at this point that they're getting anything wrong. I think that they're, they're among the Democratic leadership. I think they're taking the right approach in terms of calling for uh, the ability to see the entire uh, Mueller report. Transparency is very important. Republicans and Democrats voted overwhelmingly for the report to be made public and the underlying documents to be made public. I think that's really important. I do think that Democrats, uh, particularly on the campaign trail, they didn't hitch their wagon to the Russia uh, collusion case against Trump. When they're, when they're in Iowa and when they're in New Hampshire, South Carolina, they've been talking about a lot of other issues. They've been talking about the economy. They've been talking about uh, education, health care costs. Uh, and, and in fact, that's what we won our majority on uh, in 2018. So I think Democrats would be, uh, I think it's very important that Democrats remember what uh, led them to the majority, which was these kitchen table issues, uh, health care costs, um, prescription drug costs, jobs, wages. That's how we were able to flip 40 Republican seats. And I think that's really where the focus uh, should remain, because that's what most people care about. So, Doug, the Mueller report came out probably as well as a president could have reasonably expected. So the question for the Democrats, arguably, at least initially, is how aggressive should the Democrats be in pushing for full disclosure of the report, or should they just move on? I think they should be aggressive. I think, first of all, he wasn't exonerated by Mueller on the obstruction charge. Uh, that's clearly stated. But the reality is, is what we're reading is the Barr report. It's a Barr summary of the Mueller report. I think, you know, there was a lot of time, effort and money, taxpayer dollars spent on this investigation. I think everyone should be able to see it, whatever it may say. Um, and certainly the, the White House is pleased with the overall findings. Uh, but I don't think that's any excuse not to make as much of the as much of the report public. Because remember, it's not the, the investigation wasn't just right. into uh, Trump and collusion. It was also right. into Russians at the Russian okay. interference in our election. And I think we really do need to know everything that occurred so that it okay. doesn't happen again. I, well, yep. Doug, Doug Thornell with SKD Knickerbocker and his history years working with Howard Dean. What were you doing with Howard Dean? Were you just out of Cornell? That's a few years ago. <laughs> were you, you know. Yeah, no, I, I had been out of Cornell for about four or five years. I had been hired to be his uh, traveling press secretary. Yeah, very cool. So, yeah, so I started with him um, right around, you know, he was, he had, he had emerged. Uh, he yeah. was, um, at, you know, was, he had, he had just, he was actually, he had not received Al Gore, if you guys remember. Al Gore gave him this endorsement that yeah. he thought the race was over with. Uh, I started right before that. So I traveled okay. with him all over the country. Let's cut to the chase, Doug Thornell. Howard Dean is not a socialist. Al Gore is not a socialist. You work with Mr. Uh, Holland, Van Holland. Uh, he's not a socialist. What is a guy like you steeped in the modern Democratic Party? What do you think about the Democratic, socialist, social Democratic tendencies of four out of five presidential candidates that we're seeing? Well, I mean, I'm a, I'm a progressive, I'm a capitalist, uh, and uh, I believe that the, the system isn't working for everyone, though, and I think that yeah. we've got to figure out how we can level the playing field. How, uh, what I does... think that's where most of our Democrats are. Uh, I think Kamala Harris, 
I think Joe Biden, if he were to get That's in, right where I wanted to go. Or, What's your advice to Joe Biden to distance himself from what we've seen over the last six weeks? I think just be yourself. I think this notion of people trying to, you know, I think that there is a, uh, there's a premium that I think voters place on authenticity. So be yourself. Uh, you know, he, you know, there was, uh, I think it's important that, you know, if you're asked a, a simple question, like if you're a capitalist or not, I mean, yes, be able to say, yes, I'm a capitalist, but I believe that the system isn't working for everyone and we need to make some significant reforms. So the most important thing for Joe Biden, I think the most important thing for all of these candidates is be yourself. Don't necess- don't change in order to sort of follow the, you know, wh- where you think uh, voters are or what the, you know, what the sentiment is on Twitter. Be yourself, be authentic. You will be rewarded for that. Yeah. Yes, you're not going to get, you, you know, you, you're not necessarily going to be popular with everyone, but be yourself. That, I think, is the most critical thing in a campaign. Right. So, Doug, do you think the Democrats this time around, given how far they least are starting off uh, left of center, can the, will the Democrats uh, nominate a centrist candidate, or where do you think they're going to go with this? Well, I think it's important to remember that in all primaries, whether it's Republican or Democrat, there's a, there, there is a tendency in the beginning of the race for candidates to move to either their left or right uh, and talk about issues that are really important to the base. And then at some point, come back to the middle. I think we've seen that in really just about, um, you know, almost all of the uh, presidential races that we've seen uh, in quite some time. And, and then also in gubernatorial and Senate races. So I expect, look, there is a, there's a significant number of Democrats who want someone who uh, is uh, who, who can beat Trump. And if they disagree with them on certain issues, that's OK. The premium is on beating Trump. And if that's a person who uh, happens to be maybe a bit more in the middle, then so be it. You know, I think the most important thing is we've got to nominate the right person who uh, can bring people together, who can both mo- uh, excite the base, motivate the base, but also appeal to a lot of voters that uh, were disenchanted with the party in 2016, but we were able to win back in 2018. So those are the suburban voters and also blue collar voters. So, so if you can, if you have that. If you have that magic recipe in terms of motivating the base and then also appealing to folks who were disenchanted with us in 2016, I think you're going to win. So, Doug, from the Democratic um, Party perspective, how quickly would you like to see this huge field of contenders be whittled down to a more manageable number? That's a good question. I I think the first debates are going to be coming in June. We also have, uh, I think the the most important date coming up is this first uh, financial uh, uh, reporting period, and we're going to see how people are doing who have gotten in. Uh, I don't think that's going to winnow anyone out, but it'll certainly establish who is being who is able to raise, um, you know, the, the funds they need. And then I think yeah. the debates will have that um, effect too early on. I don't expect anyone to leave the race, though, until, you know, yeah. until next fall or early winter. I, I just there's nothing there's no reason for them to, yeah. especially if they're able to get free media, uh, you know, during the debates. I, I expect this field yeah. to expand, uh, not contract anytime, you know, over the next few months. Now, this has been wonderful. Doug Thurnell, thank you so much with SKD Knickerbocker and uh, just a, an earned and younger legend in terms of servicing uh, the Democratic Party. We look forward, Doug Thurnell, to speaking to you at our 991 studios in uh, Washington uh, again. Paul, I had like 18 more questions for Mr. Thornell. Exactly. Uh, there on just where to go because you know, it's a great story. Came out of Sidwell and 
and um, uh, Cornell playing football there, and he just went to work. Yep. You know, he, there was nothing fancy about it. Yeah, people have the <clears throat> politics in their blood, and uh, they they, yeah. they go right to the, to the big games. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.